All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You guys, I went to a conference as a robot and I discovered that robot me is not that nice. This is the oddest thing I've ever encountered. We have three robots, or rather three people, in the form of robots. Yeah. Huddled in a hallway. Oh, sorry, sir. I apologize. Oh, my God. People are having to apologize on my behalf. Should I freak these guys out? Let's just freak them out. Ah! I'm just kidding. (laughs) Note to self. When we hand over our physical bodies to the machines... We may lose our minds. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and most of the time, I'm just a human, here to help you understand this accelerating world and keep you focused on what really matters. And for the last few months, I've been exploring with the team what happens when we get our real flesh-and-blood selves tangled up with algorithms, from outsourcing your body to a robot to letting GPS do all your thinking. What happens when we lose touch with where we are in the world? So I just logged in and I see myself in a, oh, this is so weird. I'm in the Denver Conference Center as a robot, a parked robot, I should add. Okay, so let's just start with the awesome part first, okay? You can be sitting at home or in your office while a robot version of you wanders around and has an adventure somewhere far away, like a crazy place like a convention center in Denver. Enter status here. What's my status? I don't know. Hungry? I can see conference people walking by. Should I go freak them out? Uh, Look, somebody just waved to me! (laughs) (laughs) I was invited to a huge event for researchers studying human-computer interaction. But between kids and work, there was just no way I was making it out to Colorado. So the organizers suggested... I just attend as a robot. Okay, so deep within the hallways of the Colorado Convention Center, I'm Jason Patton, here with a telepresence robot. (laughs) And a real-life human man was assigned to escort me and make sure that I didn't run anyone over. Poor guy. Controlled by Manoush. Yes. She is in a um, somewhat deadly-looking, glowing pink, man-sized robot. I'm pink? You are you are a lovely shade of pink with some nice blues at the bottom. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. All of me or just part of me? It's quite the very 80s gradient, to be honest. Okay. Wow. Okay, yeah. so am I, are we about the same height, you and I? Just about. We're eye level, I would say, yeah. How do, how do we describe what this even looks like? What do you think it looks like, Jason? I would say You're it's, there. It's, it's somewhat eerie. Um, the movement is the eerie part because it's always unexpected whenever it lurches in any direction. It's a very sudden moving Oh, it's object. a sudden movement? Oh. Yeah. So um, it's basically like a TV mounted on two sticks on a bottom part of a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, I keep waiting for it to fall over, but it, it hasn't yet. So it looks a little okay. unsteady. But let's see how she moves. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So I could coordinate my robot body to move around the conference center in Denver just by tapping the arrows on my laptop back in New York. Straightforward. Perfect. Whoa, my body just like totally tensed up. Going into shift mode. See if you can keep up, Jason. Can I just hit a wall? No. And, you know, I expected to have trouble controlling my robot body, but my inability to control my bad robot behavior came as a complete surprise. Actually, I got an idea for you. They're, yeah? Uh, they have the conference that you just passed right there, but it's called Telepresence and Robots. If you're feeling bold, you could probably roll in and cause a ruckus. Come on. Yes, lead the way. Right back to the right. I'm, I'm crashing at a conference on Telepresence and Robots as a robot. This is super meta and weird. Tight entrance here. Do you dare me to go to the front of the conference <laughs> Okay, this is something I would never do in my human form. Like, just walk into a panel that's going on, walk right up to the front, look at everyone. <laughs> I, I have to leave here, actually, so I'm going to go. No, no, Shh. I'm going to go. I have to go. Yeah. What was the atmosphere like in there, Jason? <laughs> Spooked. Were they? Seriously? Definitely. Oh, and by the way, I'm embarrassed to say that we actually have video clips of me as a robot behaving badly. They're on our website and in the newsletter this week. That was so weird. Like, I was like, uh, it was an at, literally an out-of-body experience. I, I couldn't tell if I was being inappropriate or appropriate. I'll tell you about that in a second. Oh, this way. Okay. So the, what I noticed about that, what was really strange is you were, the people in there were spooked, but also were like put off by the presence, I would say, in a way that was like, you were more human than not. They were like, who is this rude woman interrupting our conference? <laughs> So it was like I had just, like, wandered into the middle of a talk going on and, like, wandered up the middle aisle, looked around at everyone, and then decided to leave. There was definitely a few people that, like, appreciated the novelty of it, considering the topic of the, of the conference itself. But people were definitely, who is this person and doesn't she know how to act? Oh, my God, as a robot, I'm a rude person. I'm like, get out of my way. Whereas in like real life, I'm like super cautious and sensitive and very like aware of my physical presence. <laughs> it's kind of liberating. I don't know. <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> but why? Why do machine-human combinations lead to bad behavior? My naughty robot lack of inhibition was ridiculously obvious. You know, it's kind of an example writ large of those times that we get so lost in our machines that we lose track of our real bodies. You know, you're holding your smartphone, walking down the street and walk right into someone. Or you're sitting on your couch, checking Instagram and ignoring everyone around you for hours. Or you put your brain on autopilot and you just do whatever Google Maps says to do. 
Turn left onto South Harrington Street, then turn left onto Hillsborough Street. It's just so easy. I mean, who needs logic? And who can read a map anymore anyway? Turn right, then left, then straight ahead. Oops, wait, that cliff wasn't supposed to be there. At the conference in Denver, researchers presented a new study on the life and death consequences of handing over our physical selves to machines, like when using GPS goes wrong. Alan Lin is getting his Ph.D. in computer science at Northwestern University, and his own scary experience is the perfect case study. So last Christmas, my girlfriend and I were driving in Arizona, and we were having a road trip between Sedona and Flagstaff. A big snowstorm was coming, so Alan and his girlfriend decided to head back to Flagstaff. Google Maps gave them the shortest route, a 15-minute drive. But we never know that part of the route was an extreme steep uphill and is a scenic route, which means it's not plowed very often in the snow. The car was actually skidding on the hill, so like going up two inches and sliding back two inches, going up two inches, sliding back two inches. So we were like extremely freaked out. Okay, in the end, Alan and his girlfriend were fine. But how embarrassing! Alan had been studying the phenomenon called death by GPS when people leave the mapping to the machines and the machines lead them into life-threatening or ending situations. And then it happened to him and his girlfriend. His colleague Brent Hecht has another favorite story about a guy who drove his Audi right off a dock into the North Sea, like very expensive Audi, because his GPS had encoded the ferry line as a road. Alan and Brent's fellow researcher, Johannes Scherning, wonders why computer programmers can't just admit that sometimes their machines won't have the right answer. I would love to see GPS devices in the future saying, oh, Johannes, I'm pretty unsure right now where, where we're going. It's a complex crossing ahead. I have bad positioning uh, accuracy right now. Please pay attention and then you will be fine. And I would love such system that better engage with the users in such a way. What me and my wife are doing on vacations, we throw the GPS device out of the car. <laughs> what? <laughs> and we just buy, you know, a paper map at a gas station and then explore the old-fashioned way. And then, you know, maybe you lose 10, 15 minutes going from A to B, but you win so many nice, you know, experience and stories. Uh, yeah, good solution. But is using a map better or worse for your marriage? Coming up. The problem with GPS isn't the machine. It's actually you. Yeah, you. I'm sorry. Stay with us. We'll tell you how. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Anoush Samarodi. And believe it or not, our global positioning system, GPS, is rarely wrong. Because here's how it works. There's a constellation of 24 satellites orbiting the Earth. And your device is getting very faint but distinct signals from exactly four of them at a time. And those four signals combine to pinpoint exactly where you, a modern-day human, are on this planet. But back in the day, some humans used a different sort of constellation to orient themselves. You know, one of the most amazing stories of, in human history, I think, is that the Polynesians, over many thousands of years, were able to settle these little islands in the Pacific, these little dots. 
Greg Milner wrote the book on GPS. It's called Pinpoint, How GPS is Changing Technology, Culture, and Our Minds. They came up with incredibly complicated ways of doing celestial navigation. Reading the stars. Reading the stars. They also you know, could look at swells, wave patterns, currents, birds overhead, clouds, all kinds of things. But they also had this thing that's very, very difficult to fathom. We're used to sort of having what navigators call a self-centered reference system. It's called self-centered because wherever we are, we're defining by that. Polynesians had this very complicated way of visualizing the world. This didn't give them more navigational information, but it gave them a sense of being able to visualize where they were, and that's just as important. And say a Polynesian navigator wanted to go from island A to island B. They would pick another island, island C, that's somewhere out there, in between the two, but off to one of the sides, the three islands almost make a triangle. They can't see that island, but they know that from the island they're beginning on, a certain star marks where that island is. And as they're starting to go on their way throughout the ocean, they know that that star is going to look like it's moving. And another star will take its place. Now, what's important to understand about this is that they didn't think of it in terms of some objective location. Where you were was always contingent on what island you chose as your reference island. For us, that's almost impossible to really think about that because we define location based on these objective principles of latitude and longitude. They didn't need any of that. The way they visualized moving through the ocean is that to them, the canoe was remaining still. It was the islands that were moving and the stars that were moving. And if you pin them down, like anthropologists did, they would basically say, look, we're we're not stupid. We, We know that we're actually moving, but that's how we visualize it. And how is that any weirder than when you lay the world out on a flat chart where you're, I mean, you're distorting the world then. It's not how the world looks at all. So really, what's the difference? It's different ways of building up a cognitive map. I love that term, the cognitive map. What does that serve to do for us? It helps to go back to the person who coined the term, Edward Tolman, who was a UC Berkeley psychology professor. And what he wanted to show was that when rats run the maze, you know, where they get the reward at the end, Mm -hmm. they were forming a kind of comprehensive view of the map as a totality. And the more they ran it, the more detailed that map became. They knew not just how to get to where they were going, but they could sort of visualize the other paths around them, even the wrong paths. And that, he argued, was called the cognitive map, this kind of innate sense that we have that we build up over time of being able to move ourselves through the world. Kind of like the way when you look down at a map, you get context. You're not just looking at a disembodied ribbon that goes from where you started to where you want to end up. You're seeing everything that's around you. And the more intimately we know physical space, the more detailed our cognitive map becomes. Why have we been okay with giving that up? There's something seductive, I find, about sort of abdicating that responsibility. I mean, once we're able to give up a skill that's strenuous at all, I think it just feels a lot easier to just not use that skill. And there's something fun, honestly, I don't know what a better word for it, there's something fun about being led around through a strange area where you don't have to know any of the context that's around you. Just kind of letting that voice, that soothing voice take you. I mean, there's so little that you yourself have to do. It's amazing that we've gotten to this point where we can get so angry when it doesn't work. Like, this happened to me the other day. I called a Lyft, and the Lyft driver called me. He's like, I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I was like, no, you're not. (laughs) And the Lyft told him I was a block away, and I was annoyed. I feel like I should give it a break and be in more wonder. But, But why doesn't it work sometimes? GPS itself 
almost never malfunctions. There's the satellites, which is a space segment. There's a control segment, which is this series of control stations all around the world that monitor the satellites. And then there's the user segment, which is the biggest segment, and that's all of us, all of our billions of GPS receivers. And when you talk to people at the Air Force who the Air Force oversees the day-to-day operations of GPS, they make it very clear that they're only responsible for those first two segments. Once the signal leaves the satellite, it's out of their hands. When things go wrong, it's the program that's in your phone or whatever you're using that translates that information into figuring out directions where you are. Or it's your mind for interpreting those directions wrong. Most GPS mishaps have to do with us sort of um, relying too much on the GPS information rather than using our own sort of innate navigational sense. So, for example, a woman in Belgium wanted to drive, I think it was less than 100 miles to her home, and she wound up in Croatia. (laughs) And she didn't stop driving until she noticed that the street signs were in this language that she didn't understand. And so that, to me, has always been... That's a long way. It's a long way. Yeah, it's a a really long way. She had a lot to think about. She did, or or not to think about, as the case may be, because she just kept driving. You know, you have people who, they were trying to drive to Capri, and they wound up in Carpi, an an industrial town, because (laughs) they had had punched in, you know, C-A-R-P-I instead of C-A-P-R-I. GPS had nothing to do with what went wrong. It was their error in putting that in and not sort of noticing that this didn't look like what Capri was supposed to look like. But also, I think that people... People, they just sort of turn off a part of their brains. I mean, you could almost say literally turn off a part of their brains. I mean, what, what I always tell people about death by GPS events is that a lot of them are funny. But we laugh at our own peril because if all of us are being honest, we've probably gotten into a situation where we were relying on GPS directions and we just weren't paying attention. And yeah, we could say, like, well, this is weird. How did it miscalculate? Why did it think that we should go here and not here? But really, if we had just been paying more attention we would have figured that out on our own. Greg Milner, thank you. Sure. The idea that we move through the world with this self-centered perspective, it kind of feels like a metaphor for our entire digital lives. With GPS, it's about you and where you are, never about how you relate to anything else, right? I mean, that's life on the web. It's all about you and what you want to read and what you want to look at and what you've been up to and what you want to eat. We kind of need to expand our cognitive maps, guys, to understand where we fit in the world, both literally, physically, and metaphorically. You know what? I think I am going to teach my kids to read paper maps. Also, I'm going to try using them the next time my family rents a car. Because you know what my husband does? Yeah, Josh, you. You always set the GPS voice to a woman speaking Hebrew. Shalom, Shemi Karmit. It's like she's like your Israeli girlfriend who only joins us on family vacations. It's super weird. Paper can't talk. I think we might have to go back over to it. On that note, the Note to Self team is Jen Boyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Kunane, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Matt Boynton and Adriana Tapia for their help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi. And stay safe out there. Look where you're going. What do I do? How do I turn myself off? I'm <laughs> beam out. Oh, I'm beaming out. Beaming out. <laughs>